Open Globe Talk is a podcast series for aspiring ophthalmologists and trainees interested in obtaining education in global ophthalmology. Be part of this unique setup as we interview ophthalmologists around the globe virtually and get to create equity in service, innovation, and medical education. Welcome back to another episode of Open Globe Talk. This is your host, Rizal Nathani, and I am joined today by Dr. Peter McIntosh, who is an Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Illinois College of Medicine. He is a dual fellowship-trained surgeon in neuro-ophthalmology, oculoplastics, and reconstructive surgery. Dr. McIntosh obtained his ophthalmology residency from Stroger Cook County Hospital and did his fellowships at Illinois Eye and Ear Infirmary for Neuro-Ophthalmology and the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary for Ophthalmic Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery Fellowship. He is also the program director at the University of Illinois College of Medicine for its ophthalmology residency program, as well as its Global Ophthalmology Fellowship Program. And so without further ado, I just want to welcome Dr. McIntosh to the show and get to learn how to incorporate global ophthalmology in an academic setting. Uh, Thank you, Rizal. What a uh, lovely welcome. And it's my pleasure to speak with you uh, here today. Well, this is a great pleasure to have you, Dr. McIntosh. And like I do with every single guest speaker, I want to ask, how did you go on to choose ophthalmology specifically? And then how did you decide to do neuro-ophthalmology and then oculoplastics? For me, it was really a, a journey of discovery. I didn't come from a family with any medical people at all. So when I started medical school, I really started it with an open mind. I actually thought I was going to do something in the medical medicine field, but I decided that I actually enjoyed some of surgery and that I wanted to include that in part of my career. And I started looking around for options, like how could I have a little bit of surgery and a little bit of medicine and combine these two things? Because I enjoyed both factors. And just talking to colleagues and friends, um, someone said, have you thought about ophthalmology? And at the time I, I said no. And so that was sort of my introduction to it. And, and I did a couple of rotations and, and found that I did enjoy this balance of clinic and, and surgery that ophthalmology provides. And then in residency, I've had a strong introduction to neuro-ophthalmology and oculoplastic surgery in the first year. And th- those are the things that I sort of gravitated to. For neuro-ophthalmology, I liked the puzzle solving and figuring it out. And I, I thought that was mentally stimulating. I, I enjoyed the gross anatomy of oculoplastic surgery. And those are the things that I decided very early, actually, that I wanted to do. And that's the path that I then followed. That's really cool. And would you say this is a common combination that people have? As I know, um, I've come across one individual trying to go into a neuro-ophthalmology and then combining it with oculoplastics. There are a number of people who have done it. I think most people don't combine it. There's a couple of other things that make sense to combine with neuro-ophthalmology, so strabismus. Some people combine pathology with oculoplastic surgery. But I think what, where it makes sense is the fact that, you know, as an orbital surgeon, you can sort of manage some of the neuro-ophthalmic things that may come compressed optic neuropathy from Graves' disease. You can be involved with the decompression surgery, optic nerve sheath fenestrations for papilledema, temporal artery biopsies for giant cell arteritis. So there, there are a number of conditions that's, that have overlap and having that surgical training can allow you to manage those patients from both sides. 
And how has this combination kind of transferred into the global ophthalmology arena? You know, you're a pretty well-known global ophthalmologist, and uh, it would be great to know how the degree kind of transfers. Some of it was, for me, honestly, being in the right place at the right time. The relationship that I developed for through global ophthalmology was by going to a meeting and meeting someone there who worked at Aravind. And through that that meeting and that this relationship sort of blossomed, that just happened to be a neuro-ophthalmologist that I work with. So honestly, at this point, much of the global work that I do focuses on neuro-ophthalmology because that happens to be the relationship that I made and have worked on uh, over the last five years now. There is certainly a need for oculoplastic surgeons in this field, and some of my colleagues at UIC do a lot of that. That's just not quite my focus at this time. We know that at Arvind, you were invited for their Neuro-Ophthalmology Journal Conference, and that has become really successful. Tell us how you got started with that, and is this something that people can jump in on as well? This journal club actually came out of the very meeting that I, that I described to you earlier. It's um, that same group from Aravind who were doing these journal clubs for the various Aravind hospitals in southern India and Tamil Nadu. And they were doing it virtually because they were all separated. And because it was already a virtual format, and this was five years ago, it was easy to invite others to join on the virtual platform. And so I was invited and I joined. It's a time difference of about 12 hours. So it's about nine o'clock at night here when it's about eight o'clock in the morning for them. So that timing happens to work reasonably well. And as I described, I've been doing that for about five years. I think what I love about it is, you know, we're talking about cutting edge research and changes to how we're delivering eye care, but we can talk about it from the perspective of us here, at least for me here in the United States, how I apply that and how I can manage my patients here with the resources I have versus how they manage very similar conditions, but with different resources or sometimes the presentation might be different. So I think that's what I love about those journal clubs is discussing the different ways to approach treating patients based on where you happen to live. That's amazing. And I think the strength of this video conferencing is that you're able to retain that hopefully during the pandemic. And they were already equipped to transition into a more sustainable learning environment than perhaps other organizations. In terms of global ophthalmology, UIC is well known for its global partners. Um, have you branched out to perhaps uh, any other institute besides Arvind? Yeah, we, we have a number of relationships that were already in place. As you may know, we've started a new global ophthalmology fellowship. Right now we have our second fellow. And uh, one of the new relationships that we're really working very closely with is the State University in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. So that's a, a new program that we're working with. My fellow last year was able to travel there once and support their didactic and surgical training curriculum, which is one of the things that we really are trying to uh, support is um, capacity building through supporting the residency program in this case. Uh, another relationship that we're working on building is with the Kisi Eye Hospital in Kisi, Kenya. And that's something that was on the in the beginning of developing right as the pandemic began. So unfortunately, that was sort of put on the back burner. But we've um, had some additional conversations and plan to move forward with that relationship as well. So those are a couple of the ones that I personally am working on as part of our global ophthalmology fellowship. But many of our faculty have others that are ongoing and also new in development. That's really neat. You know, I, I think you mentioned being at the right place at the right time, but I noticed you obtained your bachelor's degree from Ontario in Canada. And I was uh, kind of curious, you know, how was that experience and how did you kind of 
come to the United States for your further education? My family traveled a lot when I was growing up. My dad, just the nature of my dad's job. So uh, my family's from Jamaica. I was born there. And at a very young age, we moved to Canada and lived in three different cities across Canada. Um, after that, he was transferred to Basel, Switzerland, where we lived for six years. Um, and after that, we moved back to Canada. So I, I grew up never spending more than about three or four years in one city. And so I think that was always sort of in my blood, this idea of traveling and working in and living in different cultures. And so I went to McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, because that's where my family was living at the time. And that's where I decided to go to college. And then I applied quite broadly to medical school and uh, matriculated at the Chicago Medical School in Chicago. And that's the reason that I came to the United States. And the reason I ask is, you know, my next question is talking about training in a different country. And I just recently went to the AO and heard about uh, the lecture from Dr. Chiku Matenge, who mentioned about how trainees from abroad come to the United States and they get treated differently versus when our trainees go abroad. And I just wanted to ask you if you can touch a little bit on, on that aspect and you know, just just what your thoughts are on it. I think that's such an important topic. And I think Dr. Matangi is right that sometimes the, the training experience can be different depending on where you're coming from and where you're going. I think some of that may have to do with some of the legal environment about when you come to the United States. And if you're practicing, the medical legal system here is very different from other places. And that can place some overarching limitations on what a visiting person can do. Um, there are ways around that, and there are different um, requirements and permissions depending on the state that you're in. But I think that that's a reasonable concern to raise, that why should our trainees be treated differently from trainees that are coming from another country if we're trying to build a system that is building capacity? And so that's something that we really, really try to uh, address in creating uh, programs that do permit folks to come here and not just observe, but also be involved with clinical care. Our program does have a number of exchanges, for example, where we do very much honor this bilaterality, where we have residents that go, in, in our case, to either Japan or, or Brazil, and they are purely observers. And similarly, those residents will then come and visit us and function purely as observers. So in that sense, we're very respectful of the need for that kind of bilaterality. And you mentioned about bilaterality. So I'm, I'm assuming that in other cases, it's unilaterality where one group of people is having greater exposure and resources versus another. So just curious, you know, in general, how is it different outside of your program and maybe in other situations, bilaterality isn't functioning? I think we really try to strive for bilaterality. And uh, I think there can also be a bit of a distinction between resident and fellow. Our fellows, in the, at least at our institution, function as attendings. They staff our general eye clinic. They staff our inpatient consult service. So although they're doing subspecialty training under supervision, they're doing general ophthalmology um, um, and, and as well as staffing in the subspecialty area that they're working in. And so I think for that person to go overseas and do similar work, I think is fair. 
I think the work that you do overseas should be the type of work that you're doing here. Traveling overseas should not be seen as an opportunity to practice or get experience on something for you to then come back here and apply that practice and experience. So I think for our fellows, it is fair for them to go overseas and do some of this type of work because it's the type of work that they would be doing at home anyway. Um, similarly to our faculty, if they're traveling overseas, you know, they would be doing the type of work that they're trained and that they do when they're here in the United States. For our residents, I think that's where this, this idea comes in about, we have to be careful about how much they do over there if they're not allowed to do it here. There are programs that exist. For example, Aravind has a, um, a small incision cataract course that you can be a part of. And I think if that course is designed to train residents or fellows from all over the world, then that's a fair time to go there as a resident and be part of that course. Yeah. And as you were speaking, I remembered uh, something that you mentioned about colonialism and how perhaps we have had a different way or attitude towards people coming over. I'm just kind of curious, like what your, you know, research has been, has told you or experiences told you about, about that. I've had a number of uh, foreign trained grads as my fellows over the years. And the experience and the training that they get overseas is not always the same as here. And so when these fellows start, their level of experience, uh, and more importantly, their level of comfort is sometimes not the same as what we would see from trainees here. And so sometimes it can take some time for them to become comfortable at the level that we are then ready to say, okay, you can now go out on your own. So I think that there's a, a time frame that it takes to ramp up trainees, and that can vary depending on what they're training was back at home. That's certainly something that I kind of come up to because um, my assumption is when you have LMIC individuals coming to the United States, they probably have a lot of exposure to many patients, but maybe their specialized skills haven't well developed, which is why they are coming to the United States for that. Is there anything that maybe the fellows here learn from them in exchange for what they're learning from you? I can speak again, sort of about neuro-ophthalmology. You know, my fellows that have come from overseas have always said the same thing. They're coming from a country where there are not a lot of neuro-ophthalmologists and there's no opportunity to train in neuro-ophthalmology in that country. And so they have no choice but to have to come to the United States. And it can be other countries as well, but many choose to come to the United States where there's easier access to this kind of training. And I, I think what Certainly what I learn, and hopefully my residents and other fellows learn as well, is understanding the differences in access to care, the differences in resources, and what's available even to deliver healthcare. You know, I mentioned the small incision cataract course at Aravind, which is really a very cost-effective way to do cataract surgery. And yet in the United States, most people get phacoemulsification. emulsification. The equipment is just much more expensive. And therefore in LMC countries, it just is not feasible to perform cataract surgery in that way. An excellent example. And in fact, uh, we just finished up with a guest speaker who mentioned very similar things and has already implemented M6 into their residency curriculum, which is really neat to bring over. One of my last questions to you is, you know, you, you're obviously an incredible surgeon. You've been board certified uh, twice in two different specialties. And none of this, obviously, how far we've come could be possible without mentors. I was curious, you know, who have been your mentors that have helped you get to this point and continue to influence you in the field of global ophthalmology? You know, the mentors are always the people who have trained us. So 
all of the people who have trained me through residency and fellowship, I consider my mentors. I, I think that our mentors change as our career develops and as we sort of figure out what it is that's important for us and what we want to do as we go forward. Um, you know, when I took this academic position at the University of Illinois, I was really interested in having mentorship in my subspecialty, so neuro-ophthalmology and oculoplastics. Um, that was important, and that's one of the reasons that I chose to come here, because I felt like that was in place. The other thing that I didn't really recognize at the time until my first sort of end of year review with my chair at the time, he asked me, who is your career mentor? And I said, oh, I didn't know I needed one of those. And uh, that was really an opportunity for me to recognize that I, I needed to identify someone to help me with that. And so career mentoring is is really, really important, not just mentoring in terms of, you know, I want to be able to chat about difficult patients or, you know, how do I deal with the logistics of scheduling or arranging whatever treatment I'm trying to do. But really, this career mentoring part becomes really important. Interestingly enough, I asked Dr. Paul Chan, he's our current chair at the time he wasn't, but that's who I turned to. And I said, you know, would you be willing to do this? And gratefully, he said yes. And it's really been an amazing relationship um, that has allowed me to grow, honestly, in ways that I, I didn't think possible. And um, because of that, I think, you know, some of my priorities have changed over the years. Uh, and while I've always been interested in education and global health, it's really not until I started working with and speaking with Paul Chan that I realized a pathway forward for that. So I've been now become involved with global health and global ophthalmology and run the Global Ophthalmology Fellowship. I'm also the residency program director. So very, very involved with education. And, and just the day that I started, I, I didn't see that. So it's through mentoring and career mentoring, particularly, I think that I was able to realize some of this. And how did you choose, I guess, your career mentor? What were you specifically looking at? Was it, you know, something general or was it something specific? You know, I thought a lot about who I would approach. And I think part of it is I wanted someone who thought a little bit differently from how I do. And it's funny, Dr. Chan and I often talk about how we, we think differently, but I think that's what makes the relationship work because it, it makes me think about and realize and consider things that I just didn't. As I mentioned, the, the path that I'm on today, I, I would never have seen it for myself many years ago. So I think that, but also someone who had demonstrated um, success in, in his career that I thought I could learn from. That's the biggest thing to have somebody who you look up to. And obviously the, it has a different perspective on life that can enrich uh, your life and perhaps see something in you that maybe you're not able to realize at the moment. So you mentioned you have kids and a lot of our lives are centered around our families. So what are some hobbies that you like to do and you would love for our listeners to, to hear? As I described earlier, my family grew up traveling and living all, all over the world. And that is really something that I think is really important for my kids as they're growing up. I want them to travel and learn other languages and experience other cultures. I think that that is really important. So, so travel and experiencing cultures is, is a really important part of like who our family is. It's been hard over the pandemic, but that, that's, that's an important part, I think, of what we do. You know, and then just sort of other things, you know, my, my kids love to be outside and, and you know, we, we ride our bikes. My son learned to ride a bike. He's now three. He was, was a year ago, two years old. He learned to ride a bike. And so um, that's one thing that we like to do as a family as well, being outside. Well, that's wonderful. And certainly the I'm so glad I asked you a question about how you grew up because 
that is so fascinating that you got the chance to see the world at a young age. And uh, eventually you ended up in global ophthalmology and you've been an incredible resource for Arvind and in the field of neuro-ophthalmology as well as oculoplastics. So, um, you know, with that, I just want to really appreciate your time. And I think our listeners are going to get a really great sense of UIC on a whole. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Open Globe Talk. If you enjoyed this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Open Globe Talk. You can access audio recordings on our website, openglobetk.com, where we make our sessions available on Spotify, Apple, and Google. Our release dates are each Friday evening of the week we interview our guest speakers. We are incredibly appreciative of our listeners and hope you ride along to meet more inspirational figures in global ophthalmology. Thanks and take care.